the Amazon Prime original series, Lore, returns October 19th with new true tales. Inspired by Aaron Mankey's terrifying podcast, this six-episode series includes two stories that have never been heard on the podcast before. From an executive producer of The Walking Dead and an executive producer of The Exorcist, Lore explores haunting real-life tales that give rise to our modern-day myths and legends. Start the Halloween season with some of history's biggest nightmares. Witches, serial killers, a bloodthirsty countess, a cursed clock, and a rocket-fueled devil worshiper. The scariest stories are true. Season 1 is available now, and watch the new season of Lore, October 19th, only on Prime Video. This week, on Myths and Legends, we're in Greek mythology, with the story of Theseus and the Underworld, and you'll be able to add to the growing list of mythological creatures you should not invite to your wedding. And, if you do invite them, you'll see which legendary weapons to pack to get them to leave. The creature this week is a tiny shape-shifting bird that will just buzz around your house in its adorable blood-powered plane. This is Myths and Legends, episode 124, The Fall. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today, we're back in Greek mythology with our old friend Theseus. Theseus, of course, was the king of Athens. He was raised by his mom in a city called Treason and arrived in Athens to claim his birthright when he learned that his countrymen were being fed to the Minotaur of Crete. A few weeks and one dead Minotaur later, Theseus returned to Hero only to watch his dad plummet to his death after a misunderstanding. He became king and went on adventures with the Argonauts, the ancient world Avengers-style team-up. Got married a couple times, was a widower a couple of times. If you want the full list of Theseus episodes, I put it in the show notes. We've done a lot of them at this point. Anyway, now we'll catch up with him at a wedding, without a plus one. Centaurs. Of course Pirithus would invite centaurs to his wedding. Theseus understood. They were his cousins. You couldn't just not invite your cousins to your wedding. But still, it was like amateur night out here. The centaurs lived in the forest, and they weren't really used to wine. At least they didn't know you didn't drink wine straight from the wineskin. You mixed it with water first. That watered down the extremely strong wine and made it so the water didn't give you a week's worth of diarrhea. By now... The centaurs were finding that they didn't so much like the bitter, pure wine, but they did, however, really liked how it loosened things up. So Theseus left the centaurs doing whatever the 12th century BC version of the electric slide was, and he went inside. So huge was this wedding that it spilled out into the caves, though Theseus thought it was probably strategic. Pirithus knew that his family would get a little crazy, and so they were seated out in the overflow cave. The centaur cousins understood, too, when they saw who got to sit inside. It was the Olympians. They had all been invited. Well, except for Ares, the god of war. No one really knew how to kill a party faster than the guy who would actually kill the party. Still, everyone who was anyone was there. Persephone was back from the underworld with her mom, Demeter, the goddess of the harvest. Hera was looking for Zeus. Theseus glared at Poseidon, who sloshed his way to an early exit, having sent the monster that killed Theseus' son. Hades had opted just to send a cash gift. He never really liked going to these things. Pirithus, the groom, was working the room, making sure everyone was having a good time. He asked Theseus how things were going out there with the centaurs. Was Nestor keeping things under control? Theseus shrugged. They were centaurs. 
things were going about as well as you could expect. That's when the pair heard a scream from the cave with the centaurs. Theseus and Parathus looked at each other. Uh-oh. I told you this would happen, Theseus groaned. We don't know it's them, Parathus said with a sheepish grin, just as the centaur galloped into the party, polishing off a wineskin and pumping a fist in the air. Things were going to get crazy in here. Parathus pursed his lips and nodded. Okay. Yeah. It was them. If we haven't talked about this before, centaurs trying some wine and completely losing control is a super common theme, seemingly wherever centaurs appear. They're also known for being, well, being rapists. Centaurs are rapists. They're bad before they clean out the open bar at a wedding. And so now, well, no one was safe. In a flash, the Olympians were gone. They didn't need that type of press. Zeus heard the screams and peeked out of a closet where he had been helping a nymph find her coat. Yelled to Parathus that this had been fun and ducked out of there himself. The lead centaur fixed his eyes on the bride, Hippodamia, and smiled. Up in his room, Theseus pushed aside the extra tunics and travel-sized toothpastes until he found it. Even with all of his adventures, he hadn't used it for years. He'd only brought it along because Parathus had wanted to see the legendary bronze club that Theseus had collected on his labors. More screams echoed from downstairs, and Theseus sighed. It was time to be a hero. The fighting lasted until morning, and Parathus returned with Hippodamia, who was shaken, but okay. One of the centaurs had dragged her off into the woods by her hair, but her husband had come to her aid as she fought off the centaur. Winded, Theseus panted, but still managed to club the last centaur into submission. He and Parathus looked on the piles of dead centaurs, the literally crashed wedding, and the one couple still dancing on the dance floor. Huh. For a wedding where all the Olympians were invited, alongside dozens of drunk centaurs, it had gone pretty well. Theseus was the king of Athens, and, unfortunately, not all the centaurs in Greece were cousins of Perithus. The ones that weren't at the wedding quickly heard about the slaughter of those who were, and started a revenge war. They brought the war to Attica, and for the next couple of years, Theseus fought the centaurs. Sometime during the fight, Hercules popped in between his labors to help him out. The centaurs left, and, once again, Theseus was alone. After that, King Theseus began to lose track of the days. His beard grew longer and more gray, making him more like his father than ever before, the man that he had only known for a few months in his youth. The day he realized that this was happening, Theseus sat back in shock. He was older than his father had been when the man dove to his death off a cliff. Through an open window, he could see his entire kingdom. And he thought about the Minotaur and the Argonauts, his greatest achievements, and also about the Amazons and Hippolytus, his deepest shame. He had sons by his various marriages, so he had heirs. But what was left for him now? Had he been the king his father had hoped for? It was while he was deep in thought that he heard the knock at the door and turned. Oh, it was Parathus. The man always brought a smile to his face. He asked how Hippodamia, his wife, was doing. Oh, she's dead, Parathus replied. What? Theseus spat. When? How? You guys just got married. Parathus shrugged. About a year ago, maybe? Childbirth. You know, that's super dangerous in these times. Funny Theseus should mention her, too. That was why he came to visit. 
the appropriate amount of time had passed, and now he was ready to get back out there. Theseus was still single, right? The king slumped into his chair. Yeah, his last wife had hung herself, so thanks for that reminder. Single. Parathus cleared his throat. Awesome, awesome. There was someone Theseus had to meet. The next Mrs. Parathus. Theseus groaned. Oh, wait, no. Yes. Helen. Oh, yeah. You're still on that? Theseus said, burying his face in his hands. Oh, I'm still on that. Seriously, you haven't seen this girl. Her name is Helen. Uh, She's nine. Ew. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you that one, Parathus said. She's young, even for the ancient world. But I have a plan. We kidnap her, and then I have some friends who hold on to her for us until she's old enough to marry. We'll draw lots. The winner gets to marry her, and the loser gets to marry another daughter of Zeus. Do you know another daughter of Zeus? Theseus asked through his face palm. Details, details, Perthus said with the roll of his eyes. Okay, well, thanks for your pitch, but I'm out, said the king. Kidnapping a child and raising her to marry one of them? Hard pass. It was really gross. Perthus was already standing and headed to the door. Ah, whatever. He was headed for Sparta now. Wait. Sparta? Parathus was going to kidnap the princess of the Spartans? The guys with the warriors and the kicking in the pits? Parathus turned back and nodded. Yep. Was there any other Sparta? Theseus sat dumbfounded. He, Parathus, Parathus would die. The Spartans were legendary warriors. There was no way he could run off with this girl and live. Parathus walked back to the seated king. Then Theseus better come with him. Theseus considered his proposal. And he thought about his father, Ariadne, Hippolyte, Hippolytus, Phaedra. Everyone he had gotten close to died. He wasn't about to lose Parathus too. Theseus rose to his feet. All right, he was coming. He just needed to get his club. Road trip, road trip. Okay, you gotta stop saying road trip, Theseus said. We're like... 10 feet from Spartan soldiers. Seriously. Parathus rolled his eyes. Theseus had defeated the Minotaur. What were a few Spartans? Theseus shout whispered back that he had been 17 when he did that. Did he look 17 anymore? Parathus looked at the crow's feet and the budding paunch. Theseus did not, but he was still an Argonaut. Medea had actually done a lot of the heavy lifting on that one, Theseus admitted before waving his hand. Okay, there you go. Stay focused. The pair looked at the nine-year-old at the altar of Artemis. Helen, the princess, was doing her sacrifices, and the two Spartans accompanying her were dozing. Parathus wanted to go in swinging his sword around, but Theseus convinced him to stay quiet and stay alive. The Spartans would die for losing their queen, of course, but better them than Parathus, at least for Theseus. It was quick, and Theseus insisted on doing it. He slipped up behind the girl, apologized, and cupped a hand over her mouth. By the time the Spartans awoke, Theseus and Parathus were sprinting across the field with Helen bound and gagged. You know I've never questioned your choices. Mom, just, I know, Theseus replied with a grimace. 
running his hands through his hair. But a nine-year-old? Theseus. I know, I know, it's, it's for her safety, please. He won her too, Barathus chimed in. We drew lots to see who was going to get to marry this child we kidnapped. Theseus was the lucky guy. Theseus groaned. Thank you, Barathus. Thank you for that. Theseus turned back to his mother, Aethra. She was the woman her dad introduced to Theseus' father, Aegeus, after he had given them both way too much wine. Leaving the wine in their easy rapport to do some magic, Theseus had been born. His mother had stayed in the town called Treason, and that's where Theseus returned with young Helen of Sparta in tow. Theseus was the boy in their town who grew up to be the king of the greatest city in the world. If he left Helen here with his mother, she would be safe. Helen was smart, and Theseus understood that as he cut the ropes that bound her hands. The ancient world was a terrifying place, from bandits to cyclopes to the occasional Hercules-level monster like a hydra or Nemean lion, Sparta might as well be on the other side of the world from treason. Not only would she be watched, but there's no way an unarmed, untrained child could make a trip that grown warriors would barely survive. With a glare, Theseus could see that she understood that. He kissed his mom goodbye and made to leave, thanking her for looking after the girl. As he left the modest house, he found Parathus waiting for him in the street with an attitude. Okay, where's his? Theseus threw up his hands. His what? His wife? Theseus rolled his eyes. That was right. He wanted to marry a daughter of Zeus too. So the king thought up a plan to kick the can down the road. He told Parathus that he would honor their agreement. Once Helen came of age and could actually marry him. Besides, they still had to find another daughter of Zeus. Glowering, Parathus agreed and stomped off in a huff. He'd see Theseus in six or seven years. Theseus smiled. Parathus might just forget about this after he saw the next beautiful woman on his way home. It was going to be fine. Besides, if he came back, that would be future Theseus' problem. And he was sure future Theseus loved dealing with Parathus and his stupid ideas. Parathus's stupid ideas are, but that will be right after this. See if you have what it takes to handle the horror. Knock, knock, Parathus announced. What you up to? Theseus pointed to all the documents on his table. King stuff, what's up? I thought you made Athens a democracy, Parathus said, taking a seat. Theseus replied that he did, but he was like a first citizen sort of thing. Slash most writers pretended that didn't happen. Anyway, what's up? Parathus had found her. Theseus shook his head. Her? With narrowed eyes, Parathus reminded Theseus of the kidnapped child he was set to marry a few years back. The king quickly saw where this was going. Yeah. Well, Parathus found her. Her dad let him write to her, actually. He asked Theseus if he remembered how, like, really good at kidnapping future brides they were. Theseus nodded hesitantly. Yeah. Okay, well, this was going to be the most daring bride heist of all time. Bride heist? Is that even a thing? Theseus interrupted. It is now one word. Persephone, Parathus said, and then sat back with a massive, 
stupid grin on his face. Theseus laughed out loud. Okay, okay, okay. So Perithus wanted to somehow make it across an uncrossable river, brave the underworld, and steal the wife of Hades himself? Perithus nodded. In not so many words, yes. He claimed he prayed to Zeus, who was very clear. It was her. Theseus burst out laughing. He's trolling you, he told his friend. If there was one thing Theseus knew about the gods, it was that they were bored. They had all this power, they lived forever, and they hated themselves and humanity because of it. Zeus was messing with Perithus, and he was going to get both of them killed, or worse. Seriously, Theseus could probably throw a rock from his palace and hit a daughter of Zeus. It was a colossally bad idea to go to the underworld. Please, pick someone else. Perithus pursed his lips. Yeah, no. Excuse me? Theseus choked. Perithus threw up his hands. No, no, he won a Persephone now. He had waited seven years after they kidnapped Helen, and she was nearly of age. It was his turn. He was going to the underworld, and Theseus was coming with him. Theseus buried his face in his palms. He knew it before Perithus had to say it. He was going with Perithus, because Theseus had sworn an oath. If he went against his oath, then he might just be worse off than if he did go to the underworld and kidnap the bride of Hades. Sure, okay. He just needed a week to get everything in order. Theseus put a steward in charge and, later on that month, went south with his friend. They were going to Hades. Oh, I'm so dead and sad, Perithus said as they boarded Karen's ferry across Styx. Theseus shook his head as he handed Karen his coin. Don't oversell it, Perithus. We talked about this. Karen eyed Perithus as he took the quin in his wrinkled, leathery hand and shrugged. He allowed the pair in the boat. A few hours and three bones for Cerberus later, and Theseus and Perithus were creeping up in the gardens outside of Hades' palace. Okay, so this one is going to be way harder than Helen, Theseus said to Perithus as the pair watched Persephone pass one of the windows. You know she's above ground like nine months out of the year, but no, you couldn't wait a few weeks until spring. <laughs> Please, and mess with Demeter, the woman invented winter because the last guy abducted her daughter. I'll roll the dice with Hades any day. Good call. I hear he's a pushover. Perithus nodded. And then he realized Theseus didn't say that. Both turned around to see Hades crouched there in the garden with them. This was ill-advised, he said. My brother? Theseus nodded. Please, will you come inside? Hades asked as he rose like they had any choice. Have a seat. Have something to eat, Hades said, motioning to the stone chairs at the table full of food. Theseus sneered as he took a seat. He knew the rules. You don't eat in the underworld unless you don't plan to leave the underworld. That's what Persephone was doing down here in the first place. Hades smiled the creepiest smile either of them had ever seen. They were smart, he told them. Not smart enough, but smart. That's when they felt it. Their skin starting to fuse to the chair, every place it touched, and since they were wearing tunics, that was a lot of places. Theseus pulled, and the skin of his arms began to tear away from his body. Still, he knew that if he tried, he could do it. He just needed to be strong. Hades noticed this determination and was a little impressed. Most gave up after a few pulls. Still, 
it was a bad look for him if this guy got away. With a flick of his wrist, serpents emerged from the chairs and coiled around their wrists, ankles, and necks. Hades waved his hands, and the chair scraped on the floor to the front of the palace. What are you doing? demanded Perithus. Hades declared that the pair of them would sit out front of his palace, as a warning to anyone who wanted to take something that belonged to him. No one steals Persephone, Hades barked. Except for me, that one time I stole her. Helen, now nearly 17, came in from milking cows to the lunch that Aethra had set out for her. Aethra, Theseus's mother, was a princess and the mother of one of the greatest kings in Greece. She had her choice of palaces, but she opted to raise Helen like she raised Theseus. Simply, unlike Theseus at her age, Helen knew she was a princess, but it hadn't gone to her head, mainly because Aethra wouldn't let it. Aethra saw something in this girl. She was special. She was going to be one of those great names that lived on for generations, and Aether would help ensure that it was sung in praises, not curses. It had been eight years since the girl had come to live with Aethra, and the transition had been rough. Neither of them liked the situation, not even Aethra. No woman really wanted to live her golden years raising the little girl her son kidnapped to be his wife, but she was going to make the best of it, and she implored Helen to do so as well. It took about six months, but eventually Helen grew to not just tolerate Aethra, love her like a second mother. One day, Helen sat down at the table and called out to the back room. It will be any day now that the brown cow gave birth and... Aethra? Helen rose and pushed open the door to the back room where she froze. Aethra was standing there, shaking, and a man had a knife to her throat. Hey sis, ready to go home? Helen smirked. It was about time. As her brothers, Castor and Pollux, ransacked the house, Helen explained everything that happened. She was kidnapped by Theseus and some other idiot and brought here. This woman here? She kept her in a cage, beat her, starved her. Castor held out his knife for his sister. Did she want to do it? They were going to do it anyway. Helen shook her head. A knife across the throat was too good for Aethra. She would be coming with them. She would be Helen's slave. Helen looked her in the eyes. The old woman would work for her until she died. After watching the brothers sheathe their daggers with a smile at the sadistic turn of events, Aethra looked at Helen with a look of gratitude. Helen managed a discreet, nearly imperceptible nod of acknowledgement before her brothers looked back. As Theseus's childhood home burned behind them, Castor and Pollux asked Helen where Theseus was. Helen shook her head. He had been by about a year prior saying that he was going down to the underworld to kidnap Persephone for his friend. It must have gone sideways because, as far as she knew, he hadn't returned. Castor and Pollux nodded to one another. They had gone to Athens first, but the steward, who was still in charge, explained that Theseus hadn't returned there either. It started to look like Hades had had their revenge for them. Ah, whatever. They were going to send Theseus there anyway. Then, Pollux had an idea, and he turned to his brother, who smiled. You thinking what I'm thinking? Menestheus? Pollux nodded. Menestheus. In the city of Athens, 
Menestheus now stood giving a speech to all the people gathered in the square. Aegeus let a child come in here, he said. Some shepherd kid, claiming he was a king's son. And what did that doddering old man do? He gave the kid everything. And what did Theseus do? He experimented. Do away with the kingship. Make Athens a democracy. How'd that work out? There have been Amazons in the city. And so Theseus married one of them? Now there were rumors that the Spartans were marching north in retaliation because he had kidnapped their princess. Great. Menestheus looked around the crowd slowly for effect. And of course, where is he? He's been gone for a year. Menestheus ended by highlighting the fact that freedom and democracy were nice, but what good were they when you were dead? The people needed a king again. Menestheus stepped back and waited for it all to sink in. He found a fundamental flaw in Theseus' form of government. Rule by the people meant that if you manipulated the people, you could rule. It didn't really matter, though. Castor and Pollux had given him enough men to take Athens by force. But actually having people to rule over was mostly preferable to wholesale slaughter in the streets. Mostly. He watched the elders of the city come to him, and they bent the knee. Menestheus grinned. They were predictable men, and the city would fall in line behind them. Theseus had taken their power when he gave it to the people, and Menestheus was going to give it back. Menestheus' father, Erechtheus, had been banished by Theseus' father and these very same elders long ago. Before Menestheus was even born, the boy had grown up in exile. Now, it was done. His father's dream was complete. Their family controlled Athens once again. Meanwhile, in the underworld, Theseus ran. And he ran. Though his skin burned, he ran for the first time in four years. Being stuck to a magic chair had been a blessing and a curse. A blessing because he couldn't feel the days, weeks, and years pass. A curse because it had been both an instant and an eternity down there in that chair. It was one endless sensory nightmare that felt like a dream the moment he had been ripped from the chair. It had been Hercules down on one of his labors. It took Theseus a moment to regain himself, but the next thing he realized, Hercules was barking at him to go, get to the surface before Hades changed his mind. He would never know, but Hercules had bargained for Theseus' life from Persephone, and she, and Hades by extension, had granted it. Hercules still had to kill the serpents and perform a feat of strength to get Theseus from the chair, but that was like an average Tuesday for Hercules. Theseus screamed as his mind entered the world of the living, Hercules barked at him again to run. He felt an earthquake as he ran. That was Hades saying no to Hercules freeing Pirithus. He had been the one to initiate the quest to steal Persephone, and he would be the one to suffer for it. Theseus heard the growls of Hercules' fight with Cerberus. Theseus didn't care that he was missing one of the most monumental achievements of his time. He just wanted to go home. Home, however, was different. By generosity when he found it, and theft when he didn't, Theseus found clothes and food as he made the long trek back to Athens. It helped that he was on foot. It gave him time to put his ear to the ground before walking into a city that now hated him. When at last he passed beneath Athens' walls, he no longer looked like the king who left it over four years ago, but rather any other dusty traveler making his way to a city for the first time. It was then that he learned that the king had returned. The man the people were calling the true king, not some adventurer with dubious origins who it was rumored, had deceived Aegeus and conned his way to the throne. It was in the marketplaces, streets, and bathhouses 
that Theseus learned that it was over. The people had been duped by years of misinformation and propaganda. His enemies had leapt into the power vacuum as soon as Menetheus took control, and what friends he thought he had were either paid enough to forget about him or killed if they couldn't. His father's city, his birthright, had been taken from him. The people had given up their power to a demagogue, and there was only one thing left to do. Theseus had killed the Minotaur. That had been years ago, true, but he still had it in him to save his family, or what was left of it. His sons were under guard. Menestheus didn't know if Theseus would return, but if he did at the head of an army, dangling his heirs over the walls might be a nice incentive for him to reconsider. Menestheus and his men were expecting Theseus, the hero of old, to ride in on a white horse. They weren't expecting a beggar, a man who had traded his shoes for a knife, to slowly move closer to the place where they held his boys, learn the routines of the men who stood guard, and then quietly remove them. Theseus was unrecognizable, but his boys weren't. He knew that as soon as he freed them, he would have to leave. Theseus lowered his boys over the wall in a basket before taking one last look back into his old city. He remembered arriving at the city, wearing his father's sandals and sword. He had saved it, and he had a dream for it. That was all gone now. Of all the ways he thought he would leave Athens, he never imagined it would be as a fugitive, lowering his sons down in secret before climbing down himself. He looked at the Acropolis one last time, sighed, and descended into the dark. where people weren't actively trying to murder him, Theseus still had friends, one of which was Elpenor. Elpenor's sister had been married to Theseus' father long ago. He was the youngest son and a prince and apparently loved sleeping on the roof. Theseus yelled to him as he approached. He dropped his kids off with the young man and looked on to his sons and heirs. The day would come when they would all return to Athens, Theseus lied. He said he was going south, where he didn't so much have friends but enemies. They shared a common goal, though, and they would return Theseus and his sons to glory. They only had to wait. The truth, of course, was that Theseus would never see his sons again, and he knew it. The growing list of names the people hurt because of him were played in his head. Ariadne, Aegeus, Apolity, Apolitus, Phaedra, now Perithus. Perithus hadn't escaped behind him, and he could only assume his friend would never escape. After all, everyone in Theseus's life died. Theseus had been cursed, but now he was also hunted. If his children stood a chance, it would be away from him. And so he was going south, but it wasn't to find an army. He was going to safety in the one place no Athenian would dare show his head. It had been the home of the Minotaur and the Labyrinth, the one they had fought for years. Crete, the son of Minos, the man whose Minotaur Theseus had killed, had offered him asylum. At first, Theseus thought it was a joke, but Deucalion, the king, insisted that his enemy was Athens. Theseus was, very decidedly and very publicly, not part of Athens anymore. Crete couldn't fight Athens in open war. What they could do was harbor the king that Menetheus had deposed. 
Maybe one day they could sail north. But until then, Theseus would be safe in the home of his one-time enemy. That, however, would have to wait one more night. Theseus had paid for a passage on a ship, a ship heading straight for the gathering storm clouds ahead. The captain refused to press onward. And so the crew and the passengers docked on the island of Syros, in the sea named after Theseus' father. As Theseus disembarked, he actually remembered that he owned land on this very island. It was nice and extra convenient. It wasn't far from his sons, or even Athens. And it certainly wasn't Crete. He would talk to the king, like Medes. Theseus, for all of his faults, knew how to make an entrance. It was the same one he made all those years ago, with Aegeus in Athens. He walked into the feast as a humble traveler, but then stepped forward as a king. The people were in awe, and Lycomedes greeted him with a smile that faded as he realized just how much his people loved Theseus. After the best dinner the king of Athens had had in years, Theseus peeked outside and saw the storm had passed. He asked Lycomedes if they could take a walk and go look at his land. Theseus looked on his land, rocky outcropping, a cliff that stood above the sea. Then he had an idea. What if, what if he could stop running, stop fighting? He had done more than any person of his generation. He had his successes and failures, but here, staring out at the sea, he decided that it had been enough. He could stop here and enjoy the days that were left. Theseus turned and bumped right into King Lycomedes. You never quite know when to stop, do you? Theseus shook his head. He, he didn't understand. Why be a king when you can upend a whole political system? Why just be a hero when you can leave your city for years at a time, going to the ends of the earth? Why have literally any woman in Athens when you could go after the two most dangerous women in the world? Theseus had arrived on the island, and the king even though Lycomedes was a friend of Menestheus, the new king of Athens, he was going to let Theseus stay a night and move on quietly. But now Theseus was inspecting his land, he was going to stay on the island, wasn't he? Lycomedes had lived here his whole life. He had served these people his whole life. He had stayed and done the work, while kings like Theseus were off kissing Hercules' footsteps. But who would really be king of this island if Theseus stayed? They only knew the legend. Soon. Lycomedes would be in exile. Theseus looked to the ground. He apologized. He said he was leaving. Lycomedes pursed his lips and nodded. Oh, he knew Theseus was leaving. He sighed. It was just a pity. Theseus shook his head. What was a pity? Lycomedes hung his own head. It was a pity Theseus had so much to drink at dinner. After the storm earlier today, these rocks were so... So slippery. Theseus gasped with realization and tried to step to the side of Lycomedes, but the king caught his shirt. Theseus struggled, but Lycomedes' fist forced him backwards toward the edge of the cliff, to the churning water and the jagged rocks below. Soon, the toes of Theseus' sandals were gripping the rocks. Then, they slipped, and he was held solely by Lycomedes' outstretched arm. Lycomedes looked below and shook his head. It's nothing personal, Theseus. Everyone's just better off without you. 
and with that, he let Theseus go. Theseus dropped. He dropped into the sea that he had sailed with Hercules, the Argonauts, and countless other heroes whose names, like his, would live on forever. He dropped into the sea that he had looked on as a boy, dreaming of the life that he had ended up living. Theseus dropped into the sea, and he died like his father. The story went that Theseus was so drunk from dinner that he went right over the edge before Lycomedes could do anything to save him. There were celebrations in Athens that the usurper was dead, but there were still a few on the island of Syros who braved the waves and found the body of their king, preserving and protecting it, hoping that one day he could return to Athens and rest next to his father. No one knew that Theseus' children, the future kings of Athens, were hidden away with Elpenor. And after the burning of her house, absolutely no one knew that Helen's slave, an elderly old woman who had the young princess's complete confidence, was Aethra. Even Menetheus, when he came to compete for Helen's hand when she came of age, didn't recognize the woman he was hunting as she stood right behind Helen. Aether was with Helen when she married Menelaus and became queen of Sparta. She was with Helen at the birth of her child, Hermione, and she was with the woman who, in her mid-twenties, looked out on the sea and saw ships coming into port. Ships from the other side of the world, from a place called Troy, carrying a man named Paris. like most about Greek mythology is that its heroes, like its gods, are distinctly human. No one's perfect, yet all strive for greatness. Theseus, I really think, is the best of his generation. It's kind of a low bar, though. The closest ones were Hercules, who's sometimes depicted as an unstoppable murder machine, and Jason, though he's kind of a sniveling coward, who asked Medea to do all the work for him before betraying her. Super great having his name. Theseus tried and failed at a lot of things and he messed up. But in that way, he's pretty much like all of us. Still, it's kind of a sad way for him to go out. Part of me wonders if it was to match with the Iliad, where Menetheus was the commander of the Athenians. The Iliad is far older than many other sources, so it would make sense. But it was still a sad way for such a prominent character to go out. When I started the story of Theseus a little over three years ago, I didn't imagine that he'd be one of my favorites. And I absolutely never thought we'd take this long to get to the Trojan War. I mean, seriously. We've introduced Helen, though, so the Trojan War is on the horizon, and, with it, the Age of Heroes begins to draw to a close. Next week, we're back in Norse myth. Somehow, we have a story that was outside the prose edda and didn't fit super well with our Norse mythology narrative. So, yeah, next week, Odin, Freya, and Loki are back. The creature this time is the Impidulu from South Africa. It's a tiny bird with a big appetite. Unfortunately, that appetite is for blood and pain. Its true form is a three-inch tall bird. But when it wants to go out on the town, it'll shapeshift into actual lightning. It usually just flies around attacking people. And if you don't die, some of the symptoms of the attacks can be infertility, tuberculosis, bad luck, or this one really makes sense given all the others, causing people to have sex. 
If you've ever wanted to play a prank on someone by having them get struck by lightning, you're in luck. Just wait for the Impidulu's lightning to strike the ground, dig up the resulting egg, and give it to a witch to make a potion. When it wants to fly but doesn't want to shapeshift, it has this weird little car. I couldn't find any explanation for this, but the Impidulu apparently has a small flying machine powered by human blood. So even though it's evil, it's fairly environmentally responsible. They are very good friends of witches and can easily fall under a witch's control. Like the creature last week, though, that's a double-edged sword because while it can't die, it has to be used or set free or else it'll come for you. It's passed down from mother to daughter, even if the daughter isn't a witch. If you get it and you decide that you don't want to raise a nasty little bird coming home at all hours of the night in this blood car, well, you can always choose to let it go. It won't be your problem anymore, but it will be everyone else's problem because you just released a masterless void of chaos and destruction on the world. So, if your mom gives you a bird and you happen to catch that bird out of their cage at night, driving its little bird car through the air and stopping at the closest gas station, aka human, just let it stay in the house as long as you want. Please, for all of our sakes. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes, and support for today's show comes from Empty Faces, a monthly subscription that sends you cryptic clues, objects, and ciphers that you can use to solve a mystery in real time. It's a mystery, a puzzle in every box, and you'll love the challenge. Right now, just for our listeners, you can go to emptyfaces.com legends for 10% off your first box. They only accept 200 members per day, so hurry to take advantage of this offer. That's emptyfaces.com legends for 10% off your first box. emptyfaces.com legends. Today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and the story editor was Carissa Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.